Welcome to the History of Nerd United podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Thank you so much for being here. I cannot overstate how much fun I had recording this episode. Rob Harvilla, 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. It's a book. It's a podcast. We talk about both. Yeah, duh. It's about 90s music. Now, listen, if 90s music wasn't your thing, don't worry about it because it's about more than that, right? It's about how music kind of defines certain parts of your life and sometimes your personality. I'm still a little emo. I'm, I'm not afraid to say it. And I just had so much fun talking with Rob. I think he did too. So I'm not going to belabor the point. But before we get to Rob, I like to mention other podcasters who I absolutely love. One of them is Jessica Kale and her podcast, Dirty Sexy History. Now, I know we generally keep it PG here on History Nerds United, but thank God Jess exists to kind of talk about the naughtier sides of history, right? She's a historian. She's amazing. She answers all your burning questions about historical sex, drugs, pornography, birth control, LBGTQ history, makeup, poisons, and, and all the stuff that we may not cover here. She does it through true stories and interviews with the most exciting historians around. Listen, I love her. She's awesome. We interviewed her on this podcast because she's that fantastic. So listen, Dirty Sexy History, just subscribe right now. Trust me, you're not going to regret it. All right, let's get to Rob. And here we are with author, podcaster Rob Harvilla and 60 songs that explain the 90s. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, man, thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. Well, listen, we got to start this off. This is very important. Uh, I need you to admit right now that you're a huge liar. Because there's way more than 60 <laughs> songs in there. It's true. It's true. Among the many things that I am, I am I am untruthful. I Right. Like, okay, so this show starts in 2020, and it's called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s because 30 is too few, but, like, 90 feels like too many. You know, it's just like, this is not, you know, there's not a lot of logic being applied here. It's just like 60. Let's do 60. Fine. And then I get like into the fifties and it's like, I can't stop yet, man. Like there's too many other songs. I feel like I'm getting in my groove, whatever. Like their response is good enough to justify doing 30 more goes to 90, 90 makes sense. 90 songs. Explain. And then we do 120. Then we do it again. We're actually going to stop now, but that same principle applies to the book as well. Right? Like, it's just, I look at it. I look at all the songs I want to add. You know, I look at all the songs that I can't add right now, and I just keep adding more and more. You know, I can't do this without talking about, like, how bizarre or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, there's just too much material. And so, yeah, I, I don't know how we got to this point, but now it's just funny to me that I have a show and a book with a wildly inaccurate title. You know, I'm very proud of that, honestly, even if it does make me a liar. I feel like, especially for The Ringer, TheRinger.com, part of, um, I guess we could say the Bill Simmons empire. Mm -hmm. I've followed him for years. He's all over the place, and he always has been. So I think it's the perfect place to do this, where it's like, I said 60, but I want to do like 120. And that's like, <laughs> yeah, we're making this Great. up as we yeah. go along. Absolutely. I remember him like from the early 2000s, right? Page two. Yes. ESPN.com in the early 2000s. That era with like Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, man, that was so weird. And Grantland. Yeah, I was a huge reader of Grantland, obviously. And I joined The Ringer when it launched. It was in 2016. This is the longest I've had one, one job, you know, which is wild. But yeah, it's, 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 it's great to be part of the Bill Simmons empire. You know, he's, he's, he's got great instincts, you know. And yeah, as you say, he does. He is more indulgent of this sort of thing than I think a lot of other places would have been. And I'm very grateful for that. 
Here's the thing, too, and, and you kind of talk about this. You you have absolutely no problem poking fun at yourself. But, I mean, like, listen, you're, in, you're a music writer. You've got the podcast, which you write everything out, which is insane. The The episodes are long, man. They're extremely. They are unnecessarily long. They are averaging 8,500 words at this point. They started out. It's so funny. The first episode of the show is like 2,000 words, maybe. You know, but then by the Pantera episode, the Pantera episode was over 10,000 words. I will never be able to explain that as long as I live. We got it down a little bit, but man, it is it is gratuitous, you know. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, being a podcaster, I know people are like, don't don't go on too long. And I look at an hour and 20 minutes. And I'm like, Rob's Rob's losing it. But then you listen <laughs> to the episode. Like Chumbawamba, right? There is oh, no sorry. good reason I should be interested in anything around Chumbawamba for an hour and 15 minutes. But I was. I listened all the way through. Oh, uh, well, that's rad to hear. They're so, what's so wild about them is how daunting their back catalog is. Because there's like 50 of them at some point. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's insane. You know, and like for, for so many people, like they, it was just a thunderbolt that appeared and they came out of nowhere and people had no idea that they had whatever they had eight, 10, 12 records, you know, like that, that, that rabbit hole is so deceptive in particular. Yeah. That was a weird one and sort of counterintuitive, you know, I didn't expect that to be a crowd pleaser necessarily in the same way as I don't know, like a Nirvana or a Pearl jam or whatever, but I I'm, I'm glad that's a great response if you didn't think you wanted to listen to an hour and a half of them, but then you were okay with it at the end. That's a great response. I appreciate that. Now, it still comes in behind the Green Day episode, but I don't want to get into that yet. Well, we'll get to there. Okay. What I find funny is, though, like you're talking about writing all this stuff. When you decide, oh, like we'll do a book on it. Was that like, oh, that's easy. I write these pages all the time where it's like, wait, it's a book now? It was that intimidating where it's like, no, you're going to put covers around it. Now it's serious. Oh, no. The the actual putting covers around it, it being an actual physical object is, is I, I still can't wrap my head around it. You know, it's I, I've wanted to write a book for 20 years, man. I thought that this would be the culmination of my career, what I would have been working up to the whole time. It became such a monolith in my head that it was so unreal that now I've written one and it's out in the world to some degree and people are reading it and I still don't believe it. Like I have this weird, the hardcover, the physical nature of it is really tripping me out. At least I, you know, okay. So I, I'm going to write a book based on this podcast scripts. I have literally 600,000 words of raw material. If you add all the scripts together and what immediately emerges, I can't just put those in a book and be done, right? Like I have to radically, severely condense this material into a readable and coherent form. I do think it was much easier than writing a book from scratch, but it was not as easy as I wanted it to be or that I thought it would be, you know? But what the challenge that came up that I really got into was finding, taking these scripts and taking my favorite parts and taking like the most salient points that I was trying to make and putting them all together and then figuring out how to group them together and how I can get songs interacting with each other that don't necessarily always interact with each other, you know, across genre lines, across the time span of the 90s. Like 1990 feels so physically and spiritually different than 1999. You know, all of that, just trying to find discordant pairings and groups and families together and just get these songs talking to each other that haven't ever maybe talked to each other 
before, or I haven't thought about them talking to each other before. But it was it was a period, you know, where I was like, this is going to be easy because I have so much raw material. And then it was like, this is going to be very difficult because I have so much raw material, you know? Well, let me, I want to go back. Let's take a trip back. All right. What if I could take you, send you back to the 90s, you meet young Rob, right? You see him, he's standing right in front of you. Well, let's just say 1995. We're going to say 1995, Rob. Oh, when you look dear. at him, is your first thought, this guy needs a hug, or do you punch him in the face? Wow. A little of both, to be totally honest with you. First of all, what's the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie where if you touch yourself, you know, from the future or the past, like you both melt? Is it Time Cop? It's Time Cop. I, I would try to avoid physically interacting with myself. I have a goodly amount of, of kindness and sympathy for that, for 17-year-old Rob in 1995. You know, just listening to Smashing Pumpkins and thinking that my problems are my own problems and that no one has ever felt this way before. You know, and I can look at it now and it's just, I just had crushes on various girls and it didn't work out. And like, I didn't, I, I played basketball, but I sucked at basketball and that was demoralizing. Like, you know, I, the problems that seem so huge to me in the moment, just in that classic teenage way, they seem so silly to me now. But of course, listening to the music now that I was listening to back then, I can still activate that mindset, right? It's not like I think about the girls themselves, but I think about just me in my bedroom, sullen, you know, feeling lonely, feeling like nobody else got me, you know, and just the realization that just from doing this show and getting like emails and DMs from people who have similar experiences, you know, and had an as intense a relationship with like the downward spiral or whatever as I did as a 17-year-old, like I wasn't as alone as I thought. My problems were not as unique as I thought they were. And like that's funny on one level, but there is a poignancy to that. And so I don't, you know, like I sucked as a teenager in all the ways that teenagers suck, right? You know, I can cringe recalling, you know, 250 things that I said and did or said and didn't say and didn't do that I wish I had, you know, all of those regrets still apply. But like on the balance, I just I do have, you know, I'll, I'll just to answer the binary question, avoiding the time cop aspect, I'll give my 15 year old self a hug, a 17 year old self a hug. That's all right. Fine. I'm going to change it just a little bit. OK. What if young Rob is about to go do an acoustic open mic in college and play tonight tonight? Does that change your answer? See, now that was one of my better songs, if I do say so myself. That was OK. Here's where I would punch myself. I would punch myself when I, I asked a young lady out on a date my sophomore year of college and unwisely she agreed. And we went to see Rounders in the theater. That's like a Ringer core movie, right? That's like the Ur Ringer movie right there. So that's. Oh, yeah. And then I. Oh, my God. I can't. Believe, I took her to open my night where I was playing. Oh, it's the. Oh, my God. It's so dumb. It's like full body cringe, right? I would punch myself in that moment. And I think. I think I tried to play. Maybe I played tonight, tonight, and hopefully that went all right. I tried to play. Every breath you take by the police and like the the chord, there's a chord or several chords in that song that I could not like make my hands. It's very hard to play that song. It's very hard to play and to sing. And so like I bombed. Not only did I take a girl on a date to open my night, but like I sucked at it. Like I had to abort a song 
in the middle. I would punch myself in that instance and maybe only in that instance, but I would for sure punch myself for doing that. But damn it. That's, that's still guts though. You got, you got to have guts to pull that on a date. Guts, guts is one way of describing it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Guts. Yeah. We're going to move on to the next question because I'm starting to relive all the times that I've wanted to punch <laughs> myself. Yeah, no, that's the thing. That's the danger of this, of this exercise is I get other people cringing about their own shit. And I don't want that truly for you or for anybody. Well, let's do Let's do something a bit happier, right? Because I, your book definitely made me think this. What is the first album you purchased with your own money? And because we do have a couple of younger listeners, what format was it in? Right. I always love this question, but it's always more complicated than you think it is. Because like, okay. The first album that I think I asked my parents to get for me when I was a real little kid was Wham! Was whatever Wham! record had Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go on it. And so I does that count as... That's not my own money, though. Okay, so like, I think the answer is actually Bon Jovi's New Jersey. Or like, that's very early. And the big thing, this is like 89, I think. And the big thing is what I really want is Appetite for Destruction. I want Guns N' Roses. But wisely, wisely, I understand this. I respect this decision. They're like, no. You know, I'm what? I'm 10, 11. It's like, Robbie, you can't have Guns N' Roses. Like, fine. New Jersey. And it was great. I love that album so much. I had Def Leppard's Hysteria around the same time. That was probably my own money. We're probably in allowance time there. You move on from there to like MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice. You know, you cross over into the 90s, Technotronic, CNC Music Factory. You know, a lot of those were probably my own money. There's not like one definitive one. And I wish I had the memory of like walking into the store, like slapping down my hard earned given to me by my parents, $10 bill. You know, I, I don't have that concrete a memory, but those are the tapes from around that time. It probably was a tape, you know, and that's, that's what I was into. That's what Robbie was into when he was 10. How about you? I remember vividly, it was my money from uh, working at McDonald's. I had a summer job and then I worked at McDonald's. Okay. And I remember right. it was two. I bought two. It was Offspring, Smash, yes, and Live Throwing Copper. Wow, that's fantastic. That's so fantastic. You don't need anything else in 1994. I wonder if Live has even come up obliquely, and it's weird if they never come up at all, because that record was so huge. Like, all of that record. I White Discussion, man, that is a fantastic closing track, you know, for a 90s album. That's a great twofer. That's an awesome first two albums with your own money. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I did pretty good. Um, the next few, there might have been some questionable things in there, but we don't need to go into that. Yeah, you know, it's just sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad. I mean, live, though, and especially throwing copper, it's at the same time when you look back on it, some of it is really overwrought. Like he was, <laughs> he took himself very, very seriously. It was a very 90s thing, but damn, yeah. like you go back and listen to it. I'm like, oh, I'm back. I am back in my bedroom thinking about how deep his lyrics are. Her placenta falls through the floor. It's deep, man. That The spirit of the, the dying goes in the bit. Oh my God, it's beautiful. It's amazing. He takes himself very seriously. There was like an article from like a year or so ago about how that band is like, you know, just collapsed because he's such a dick to everybody else, you know, over money and over, you know, the spotlight or whatever. And like, there's this, 
that I, I have a sense that like that got really ugly, you know, I think because he takes himself so seriously, but that's why they were so good to begin with, you know, is that he did take himself so seriously. Now, Rob, this is going great, but I do have a bone to pick with you. Right. That's fine. I need to know this. I had three bands uh-huh. that were like that. Like if I have to define myself by three bands, I know those three. All right. One of them is in the book. Just kind of a quick reference. One of them gets a good section, but one of them is completely missing. Wow. How mad am I allowed to get on a scale of one to 10 that one of them is missing? How personal can I take that? You can take it totally personal. You can be a 10. That's fine. I like intense. I like passion. You know, like I, I love suggestions truly. And I love suggestions even when they're phrased as like accusations or like, you know, you know, obscenities, you know, it's, it's cool with me because I, this is Coming from my own place of like overwrought passion for the stuff that I love, right? Like I get it. Like of course I get it. That's the entire point of this enterprise. So like, like give me okay, one's you know, one is squarely in there, one's barely in there, one ain't in there at all. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, okay. What is uh what's what's the one I got? Gin blossoms. Oh yes. That was the second episode. I wanna say that was like first. 10 or 15 cds you know you know how you can like you know your first cd maybe you know your fifth like for a while like you can keep your whole cd collection in your head but then it gets a little too big and you can't like it was that was early on for me new miserable miserable experience and now like that's that's an important one that was the second episode i ever did i wore that cassette out oh man it's so good it's so good front to back and they're one of the bands like you can go see them like tonight. The one that you did not mention, which we'll get to, we'll, we'll save that for last. The one you did not mention, all three of them are actually still making music, but most people probably don't know that, which I'm cool with. It makes me feel cool. Okay. No, that's, there's plenty of people like that. I'm going to guess Everclear. Is it Everclear? No, that would be, that would be one. But the that one would... that's obliquely mentioned, you don't really go into it, Google Dolls. Ah, ah, the Goo Goo Dolls are still lingering in the background of the show, right? I have like mm-hmm. 10 episodes left of the show as we as we speak. The dominance of Iris and name for that matter. You know, it's like the, the Goo Goo Dolls are a possibility. I'm glad they come up in passing. It's because I know exactly actually where the Goo Goo Dolls come up in the book. I interviewed them and I saw them live like about their new record it was pre-COVID, right? So it was probably 2019, 2018. I'm not going to remember the name of the record or whatever, but they played a big theater in downtown Columbus. I went, like I was surrounded by moms and dads and I had a fantastic time, dude. So I, I respect the Goo Goo Dolls immensely. It's like sort of honorary Midwesterners. I always think that they're from, you know, Ohio or something. And then it's Buffalo. It's like, ah, close enough. It's snowing. It's generally you know, in it's, that area. Lots of snow. Yeah. And yeah. It's spiritually Midwest. No, I've seen them at least four times. Um, okay. That's been good. Um, I've not seen Gin Blossoms. You got to do that. The one that's missing. And I'm sorry, you might just have to do another episode. Better than Ezra is nowhere in this. Ah, uh, God. Yes. Absolutely. You know what I tried to do? <laughs> I don't even know. It was unrelated to anything, but I was going to try and do, I was going to just try and say, yeah, that's right. Like the dude at the end of good or like whatever that is, but I can't do it. Like I would physically destroy my voice by trying to go. Yeah, I can't do it. But I thought about doing, I had that tape. I can picture putting that tape 
in the tape deck of my car and listening. What's the first song on that record? I really like Into it. the Blood. That was that was the one that got me addicted to him. That's a good record. Yeah. Yes. That is an oversight. You are allowed to be like a 15 angry at me for no better than Ezra in the book. That's I, that's, that's I love validation. And I saw them again three months ago in DC. Three months ago. Yes. Okay. The place was not full, but that was fine. But the best thing about it, too, and you know, especially when we're talking about a lot of 90s bands are in this place, there is a dedicated fan base, but like right. they're not going to sell it out, but they have to know how to do a great show. So like for Better Than Ezra, a lot of people don't know this, the lead singer, Kevin Griffin, wrote Collide with Howie Day. Like he's co-writer on that. Right, right, right. So he plays it when they're, it's just better than Ezra because he knows not everybody remembers them or anything like that. So if he, they do a sure. couple of covers and everything, they got, they got everybody in the palm of their hand and yeah. also great popcorn at the Lincoln theater. So we had a really good time. Oh, that's rad. Is it like the original lineup? What's the deal there? The original lineup, except for the drummer. The drummer is new from like the last two albums. I think. That's not bad, dude. I mean, I, I thought you were going to tell me it was just him and like, you know, a bunch of dudes 20 years younger than him. So I'm, I'm gratified if there's two of them from Deluxe. I would not have, I could not have told you the name of this record. Rosalia. Oh my God. Rosalia is a fantastic song. I played Rosalia at open mic nights. Holy shit. I forgot about that. This is awesome. I'm going to go listen to this record right after we're done talking. This Don't is- sleep on this time of year either. That one is the most perfect fall song on the face of the earth. All right. And then there is a hidden industrial metal song. Yeah, they sing like German or something. It's I don't oh, I never boy. looked it up what exactly that was supposed to be. But yeah, now I'm being a total pain in the butt and I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one. But you seem like the type of the guy that you'll take it a little personal when somebody's like, you don't have this in the book. And you're like, damn it, I should have that in the book. Like, how do you even decide how to do this? Well, it's arbitrary as hell, man. I, it's the, this is the thing. You know, this is how I get a show with 60 in the title and I end up doing 120 episodes of it, right? Like, I massively underestimate the size of what I've even claimed to be undertaking, right? And I just, I, I certainly, if you would have asked me in 2020 if I'd still be doing this in 2023, I would have said, I would have worried that I would have burned out on it, that I would have sort of run out of material, both musically and sort of like personally, emotionally, you know, like that I wouldn't have enough stories, that I wouldn't have enough connective tissue, that I wouldn't have enough enthusiasm, you know, and it's truly gratifying to me to be sitting here in November, you know, of 2023 past the three year mark now. And I still feel I'm not going to do this. It's going to end, but I could go on if I had to. You know, and I think I would bring hopefully the same enthusiasm that I brought, you know, to the first 30. But I I genuinely, it's my favorite feeling. The Rosalia feeling is my favorite feeling in the world. In all honesty, like a song that I've forgotten about. I, I played that song at open mic nights and I have tried. I have done it on the podcast. I tried to list, tried to physically remember every song that I could. And I never had that one. And like, that was part of my repertoire, dude. I could have played that for that girl during that awful date, you know? And it's like, that's such a good song. I'm so glad that I remember that song now. Thank you. I mean, it's a deep <laughs> cut. It, you know, it sounds like just, it's not quite fully rock and everything like that. So you're going to have to do at least one more episode. I'm sorry. That's fine. Well, I've got 10 episodes left. And I like, I know what those episodes are, but like, 
there is a, an arbitrary fluidity built into this. Like Portishead, which I think is the current episode, like they were on the bubble for a long time. And finally, I pulled the trigger and I'm very glad that I did. But like, I reserve the right to just make wild, arbitrary, random, you know, impulsive decisions. That's the whole point of having a show, in my opinion. You've done so much work. You've written so much. You've talked so much and all that stuff. Can you explain the 90s yet? Because I know I can't, right? Because like, for instance, just from the book, when I just think you end it on Lisa Loeb's stay, right? But then within this book, you've also got like Whitney Houston. You've got all over the genres, which I mean for, and this is what I'll tell everybody too. Like if you're like, oh no, he's only going to, it's only rock. No, no, it's, you listen to everything, man. But I just thought like, if I could explain the nineties, I'd just probably be like, I mean, it was fine. Nothing, nothing really happened. We, uh, <laughs> right? You have the '80s. I can explain the '80s. I can draw a picture of the '80s. That's easy. Then you get to. Oh, you know, how would you explain the '80s? I, maybe that'll help me explain the '90s if you explain the '80s. Big hair, uh-huh. glam rock, yeah. great music, mm. terrible fashion. Okay, that's not bad. Uh, that's not bad. That's legit. The explain was always. A little self-deprecating, right? Like it was, I did not come into this project with a grand unified theory of the 90s. And I don't think that I will leave. I don't think I will exit this project any closer to that. You know, it'll be one of those things where my conclusion will be that no conclusion can be drawn. You know, it's so funny, like coming at this now, the 90s does seem, you know, like this utopia in terms of like world events or whatever, but that's all your perspective, right? Like I think that what's true about the nineties is you didn't know as much about what was going on with other people in other parts of the world that you do now. Like it was as bad in many ways as it is now, but you were just blissfully unaware of it because you didn't have the internet. I think every time I start to talk about the 90s as a distinctive unit and try and explain the 90s to people alive in 2023, I come back to this idea of it being immediately pre-internet, right? Like the internet exists and like the cool or like the most tapped in people are on it from like whatever the mid 90s on, but it's not the monolith. It's not where we all live the way it's the where we all live now. You know, Napster is around in the later half in the last few years of the 90s, but Napster does not destroy the music industry really until the early 2000s. Like this is the last decade where MTV has the total dominance that it does, that radio, you know, whether it's hip hop radio or alt rock radio has the dominance that it does. Like this idea of the monoculture is maybe a little bit of a mirage, but like it sure did feel in the eighties among the big hair and great music and terrible fashion. Like everyone was listening to Prince, Madonna, Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen. Right. You know, but that's, I always say that because of MTV, but I do think that there is no MTV equivalent now other than just the internet. You know, there is this atomization that makes it hard to explain the two thousands or the 2010s. But so the best way I can explain the 90s then is it's like it was a deceptively peaceful and serene time, mostly because we didn't have the Internet yet, really. Oh, that just obliquely reminded me that I had a beeper. (laughs) I never did. And I don't know why. I guess I was when how old were you when you had a beeper? Maybe 16. I only had it, I think, for like six 
months. Oh, for younger people, you used to have this device that somebody could call a number and then yeah. your number would be sent to this little box that you probably kept on your belt because you were a dork. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. it would beep and it would tell you the phone number of the person that beeped you. Yes. It was like a really weird primitive texting. Like, did you have enough people calling you that this was something? No. Okay. I mean, it's fine. You can lie to me. I mean, it's you can totally convince me. I, I was working at McDonald's. Right. I, right. You know, you I had, that. I had yeah. friends, but I, you know, like everybody I had like five friends that I actually like hung out with. Right. And yeah, we, yes. it was usually all together anyway. So it's like, who, who's calling me except my mother to say, where the hell are you? Right. They just call you McDonald's. Mm-hmm. There weren't enough people calling me for me to justify the beeper, you know, and it just, it does seem cumbersome. Like, and all the beeping just seemed disruptive, you know, six months, huh? That's all. Did you just get a cell phone at that point or did you just chuck the whole I just idea? chucked it. I'm like, what am I doing? Sure. No, I get that. I, I guess I am sad I never had that experience, you know, just for the, the cultural experience of it all. Oh, well. I can promise you, you missed absolutely nothing. I guess so. You're not, I guess you're not really selling it, you know, as a necessity. So, yeah, maybe I missed a bullet. Okay. If I could get you an interview with anyone from this book, living or dead, anyone. Oh, God. Who would it be? <laughs> You got to pick one. I'm not even giving you two. One, just one. I decided pretty early on that I didn't want to interview like the artists, right? You know, I wanted to interview other journalists, podcasters, authors, fans, right? I wanted to come at it from that perspective. And even if I did interview an artist, I wanted to interview them about like somebody else's song. Open Mike Eagle, Open Mike Eagle, the rapper, has come on a couple of times to talk about the Breeders, to talk about De La Soul, like. So it's 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 not necessarily the kind of book where I'd want to talk to somebody about their music, but I will pick somebody to do that. And it's Mark Sandman, who is the lead singer of the group Morphine. I can justify doing an episode on anything, any song any, that I want, really. But like Morphine has always been like on the bubble of like, I don't know if I can come up with enough material or sort of justify this. But like they're a band from Boston. I don't know if they were jazz necessarily, but it was like Mark played like a bass that had, I think, two strings and a drummer and a saxophone player. And they had this very smoky, like noirish sort of sound. And I think he, you know, he was sort of a poet, fancied himself a little bit of a poet. But I love those records so much, like Here for Pain, Like Swimming, and The Night. His last one was The Night, and that was late 90s, right? 98, 99. And then he died. I don't remember the circumstances but he sort of dies tragically and you're left with this record, the night that is so beautiful. And it's one of those records that feels like posthumous almost like it has this eerie sort of mourning quality to it, even if it didn't start out that way. And it's like, that's, that's always music that was really important to me when I was a teenager, you know, and they're not resonating, you know, in the streaming algorithm or whatever, the way, you know, the Goo Goo Dolls are certainly, Whenever I mention them, like somebody's like, oh, yeah, I love them. You know, like they're one of these bands that's has still like a secret handshake sort of vibe to them, which is something I really cherish even now. And so uh, the question of what I would talk to him about is open. You know, like I would just it would just be Chris Farley talking to Paul McCartney. You know, like it's just I would just be gushing or just even more inarticulate than I ordinarily am. But like that's a band. I really wish I had seen live. I never did. 
you know, and I really, you know, even now, even with 10 episodes left and all these songs I still want to do, there's every chance I could wake up one day and just be like, I got to do this because I love this band so much. The book's about to be out. You've got 10 episodes left. Yeah. Are you almost a little sad to possibly leave this behind in this form, right? You could always go back to it, but are you kind of almost like, oh, I'm getting a little bit nervous coming to the finish line? Oh, I'm incredibly sad and incredibly nervous. You know, I mean, this I have the same mentality that I, I did when I panicked and I jumped from 60 songs to 90 and then 90 to 120, right? Like it's, I reach a point where I got 10 left and I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I got to go. Like there's too many more. I got to do it. I kind of keep going. And it's like, I'm going to make myself stop, right? But oh, it's terrifying. You know, it's just objectively... This is the most reaction that I've gotten to anything I've done in my career, you know, to get emails, DMs from people. And they're just talking about songs, bands that they loved, you know, their own mundane memories or not so mundane memories. And it's so gratifying just to talk to these people and hear their stories. I've never had this experience before. I've never written a book before. I've never had been asked to write a book before. Like, I'm terrified to leave this. You know, and I know that I'm going to do another show, another podcast, and I know I don't want to do another book. And whether they're connected or not, I don't know. I don't know what concretely either the podcast or the book is that I do next. You know, and I guess the first decision I have to make is like, do I do X songs that explain X, right? Do I keep the same format, but apply it to a different decade or like a genre or whatever? Or do I try and do something completely different? Like, I, you know, I, it's, I'm, I am very, very sad and very, very trepidatious about leaving this behind. But I think leaving it behind is part of honoring it. To have an ending, I think, is important. I mean, it kind of highlights, too, just how hard it is to define the 90s, right? Because if you're saying, like, X songs that explain another decade, it, it does feel like these other decades are a bit more defined, whereas the 90s is almost ignored in a lot of different ways like it's almost it feels skipped over or maybe that's just my perspective huh because honestly you get to the 2000s and it's like september 11th that kind of defines everything right of course course. all of these things so then before that right you had the 80s which lord knows there's plenty of stuff done on the 80s probably too much that's right i said it probably too much yeah but the 90s, like this is, it's one of the reasons it hit me so hard is because I, it feels like there's not a lot out there on the 90s. Maybe I'm lying. Wow. I don't know if you're lying, but you know, like Chuck Klosterman did a 90s book like a couple of years ago. The way culture works and the way music in particular tends to work, like the, psych, the cyclical nature of things. Once you get to about the 20, 30 year mark, that time becomes retro. That time becomes classic rock, right? So we're living through the 90s and Nirvana and Pearl Jam are new, but like the Who or whatever is Pink Pink Floyd, you know, is, is classic rock. And it's it's still sort of looming even when you're trying to listen to the new cool stuff. Like that's the stuff your dad liked, you know, but you're into this stuff, but there's more connective tissue there than you think. And now you shift that all. And now you can buy Nirvana t-shirts in Target, right? And like, I, it, it's interesting to hear you say that because like, it's too scary for me to watch it, but that show Yellow Jackets, right? Like the, the scary show on Showtime that has very 90s soundtrack and they'll put like Just a Girl by No Doubt at the end of the episode or Alanis or whatever. Like, I feel like the 90s keeps coming up as like an era now, as like a set piece. Like I there's a, 
specific term that I'm not thinking of, but it's there's all sorts of movies and TV shows set in the 90s, you know, that can treat it as a relic of the past that has like a very legible incoherent like vibe and fashion and like color scheme or whatever. Like the 90s feels distinct to me still in a way that the 2000s don't. I agree with you that the 2000s unfortunately are defined by September 11th and everything that came after, you know, just as surely as this decade, you know, I think is defined, this is defined by COVID, you know, and everything that came after. And I'm relieved to hear you say, if you feel like there's not a lot about the nineties, that makes me feel, you know, like the field is not as crowded as I may be worried that it was. Yeah, no, I'm going to go ahead and say it. The nineties are the middle child of the past few decades. Okay. It exists. People know its name, but they probably don't know much about it. I mean, I saw a meme the other day where some kid said the late 1900s, and I got, I'm so mad at that meme. <laughs> no, that's a little upsetting. That is, yeah, it's suddenly you're back in the Civil War or whatever. You don't, nobody wants that. And so, yeah, that's, that's very funny. All right, Rob, last question for you. History Nerds United, we founded it just because people say history is boring, nonfiction is boring. Uh-huh. If I sat one of those people in front of you and they're like, this isn't really my thing. Why should I read 60 songs that explain the 90s? I think the one concrete truism that I've come to embrace is that the music that you loved when you were a teenager is the purest love affair you'll ever have in your life. You know, and so that's the 90s for me. I was in high school. I was in college. And that's why that's why the 90s for me. I can give you all these other rationalizations, but it's when I grew up. The music you loved when you grew up is going to be the most important music to you throughout your life. And I think that's true if you were born in the 50s or the 2010s, right? And so even if you don't know these songs intimately, you know, if you don't know the decade at all, if you weren't alive for it or you didn't care about popular music while it was going on, I do hope, my hope is that like by me telling my stories and sharing, you know, my overwrought passion for these songs in real time when I was 17, that'll get you thinking about when you were 17. Or if you are 17, that'll just get you thinking about yourself some more right now. But that'll activate, you know, your passions for whatever music is most appropriate to you, whatever time, whatever era is most appropriate to you. My hope is that the idea of loving music as a teenager and that being a very specific and very intense and sort of undeniable love affair, that that is universal, even if you don't know the 90s themselves at all. Rob, the book's awesome. The podcast is awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, man, I, this has been awesome. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. And that's it for this episode. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. 60 songs that explain the 90s. Get the book. Download the podcast. Listen to it. Also, go ahead and listen to some 90s music. Get back in that groove. All right, until next time, hit us up. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Take a look at the new website. Until next time, nerds, stay cool. History Nerds United.